The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Sometimes in literature, we take pleasures in the subtle, the baseball equivalent of a well-executed sacrifice squeeze, for example. And sometimes we just swing for the fences. And so in our episode number 450, a nice round number, we present the story you have been requesting for seven years. And we present it in October, of course. This is a home run. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to October, mid-October. Welcome to the creepy and sinister world of Edgar Allan Poe, although I don't think he took much pleasure in being that way. That's part of the fun. Do you get that sense with him? I don't feel like he would have dressed up in a costume to scare trick-or-treaters as they came to his door. I don't think he'd have relished being the old eccentric on the hill who thinks weird thoughts and jumps out of the shadows to say boo. I always feel like Edgar Allan Poe was just trying to live his best life, wishing things were not quite so hard, wishing his demons would cut him some slack, wishing he had more money, wishing he could find true love that wasn't doomed wishing and hoping and trying, wishing people around him were not so dumb. In love with literature, Edgar was, but forever disappointed in it and its practitioners. He wouldn't have been the guy in a Frankenstein costume at the front door who got a kick out of kids who were scared by him. He'd have been roaming through the streets on Halloween, startled by the evil he saw everywhere, suddenly manifesting itself in smaller forms than usual. Halloween as we know it probably would have sent him straight to the bar and thence to the gutter. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way, your host. I'm glad you're here today. Here's what we're going to do with Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, excuse me. There's someone knocking at the door of the studio. Yes. Hello. 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 This is Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, wow. That sound you hear. Yes. Bricks. Bricks. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. Person. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. Yikes. I am to be entombed, it seems. A pity, really. I have so much more to give. I'm sure you do. If only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come to my rescue. He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. Well, that's certainly true. Oh, won't you help him? You hard-hearted book lover. Won't you help him? And me? Edgar, 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 you have so much more to give, just like some of our listeners, hopefully, and we hope they help out the cause of literature and the arts, and ahem, 
us. You can help the show at patreon.com slash literature or at historyofliterature.com slash shop. If you're more of a one-time donating kind of person, there's a place for you to buy me a virtual coffee and just uh, give a a one-off amount. Or at patreon.com slash literature, you can sign up for a small monthly contribution. We appreciate help in all forms, monetary and otherwise. If this isn't the right time for you financially, that's okay too. A nice review or a nice rating or a nice email or, hey, I'll take a nice thought once in a while. A kind word. We're not too choosy. We accept kindness in all forms. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to set up this story. I've chosen 10 things you might not know about the telltale heart. I divided them into things before... You know what? I didn't divide them. I'm giving you all ten before the story. We'll do all of them, and then we will set the stage, and then we'll give you the story itself. Okay, first, some basic basics. We're not even on the ten things yet. The Telltale Heart was first published in January of 1843, when Poe was 33 years old. He, as you know, died pretty young. At age 40, he would live for another six and a half years after publishing The Telltale Heart. He was at the height of his powers in those years, if you count his powers being pretty much full of misery and and driven by demons and desperation for much of his life, all of his life maybe. But as far as output goes and fiction and what we know him best for, he was pretty much at the peak. He'd written The Mask of the Red Death in 1842, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Telltale Heart, and he would soon write The Black Cat, The Premature Burial, and The Purloined Letter, all within a year or two of one another. Plus his novel The Gold Bug. He had not been writing as much poetry at this point. Before The Telltale Heart came out, he hadn't published a poem for three years, but then he did publish a bunch after that, including Lenore, which came out a month after The Telltale Heart. The Raven, the other candidate for Poe's most famous work, along with The Telltale Heart, came out two years later. One poem that is not a candidate for Poe's most famous work is a poem he published the same month as The Telltale Heart. It's called The Conqueror Worm. It's an intriguing poem, but not one we'll discuss today, because we have a conquering message, so to speak, which we need to pass along before we get to the dark recesses of Poe's mind. Treat before trick, let's say. This is an email from a listener who writes, Jack, hello, greetings from Mississippi, a most literary state. I like to think Eudora Welty is watching me type this email. What she makes of email, however, is anyone's guess. Hmm, well, that's intriguing. This is me, Jack, not the emailer. I think she'd have liked email. Dear, dear Eudora, I think she liked pretty much everything, don't you? She's the warm chocolate chip cookies of literature. Well, she didn't ha- She didn't like hatred and intolerance, I suppose. She- I suppose she didn't like evil. But we need to do an episode on... Eudora Welty. Is Mississippi a literary state? As our emailer suggests, it would be hard to argue otherwise, if for no other reason than Mr. William Faulkner. But Welty is there too, and Richard Wright is from there, although I always associate him with Chicago, first and foremost. John Grisham is from Mississippi. Jasmine Ward lives there now. Barry Hanna is from there. Guess who else? Thomas Lanier Williams author of The Glass Glass Menagerie and 
a streetcar named Desire, Thomas Lanier Williams. Oh, you don't call him Thomas Lanier? Mr. Thomas Lanier Williams, born and raised in Mississippi. You know him better by his other name, Tennessee Williams. Is that a blow for Mississippi? Should we count that against Mississippi as a literary state? I mean, he could have called himself Mississippi Williams. He legally changed his name to Tennessee. It was a nickname some college friends had given him because of his southern accent and because his father had some roots in Tennessee. My guess is Thomas Lanier was bragging about those roots, and so they started calling him that as kind of to make fun of him. And he liked it better than his real name anyway, and there we go. That's another person we need to do an episode on. He's pretty fascinating. But is it a blow to Mississippi? That when they list the authors, they claim they have to say, oh, yes, and ahem, Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Imagine if you were, if you're a proud Seattle resident and your most famous mayor's name is California Jones. How many plaques are you going to put up? <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the email. My girlfriend, Hannah, is a reader and a fan of the HOL. Oh, thank you, Hannah. We listened together on occasion. We particularly enjoyed your episode on Goblin Market during a recent road trip. Laura and Lizzie helped us get through the miles, as did your delightful asides. Hannah's birthday is coming up. She turns 26 on October 13th. There's something nice about turning double the age of your birthday's day. Maybe there isn't, really, but it seems nice and orderly to me. Hmm, let's pause there. That's interesting. This, this is a beautiful statistic for reasons I will explain. 26 is a wonderful age, and I love, love, love these stories of two people listening to the history of literature in a car together. It never ceases to amaze me and delight me and flatter me and humble me. So thank you for that. But also... This sounds like, I don't want to speculate about this relationship because who knows, really. But let me say, if I were reading this email as literature, if I were free to speculate about the characters, even invited to by the nature of reading literature and fiction, I would say this. Here's a narrator, who a character who notices the doubling of a birthday. He attributes it to his own sense of orderliness that there's something nice about the numbers, and all that is certainly true. It does reveal that our character has a taste for numbers, but it also reveals to me. And again, I'm not talking about Hannah and the emailer now. I'm talking about what I would think if these were characters in a novel and I was reading a first-person narrator who was telling me these things. I would say it reveals something even more beautiful. There's something about... Fresh love, young love, youngish people being in love where you notice things like this about the other person and his or her birthday. It's not just romantic love. It's the kind of thing a child could think about a parent or a grandparent or especially a parent might think about a child. It's an extra level of giving, an extra level of loving. I have a sister-in-law who notices things like this about my own kids, her nephews. It's her role as an aunt that makes her think these thoughts, and it makes me smile every time to know that her love and her kindness 
Those things have her looking out for my kids in this way. So, based on the context of this, a girlfriend, that's not much to go on. But an observation, oh, my girlfriend is having a special birthday. Well, that reminds me of the days when I would think things like that about my own girlfriend, who is now my wife. Oh, your nose crinkles in three places when you smile. That's just something I've noticed. Or, oh, isn't it time for you to go to the dentist? Today's November 1st, and I remember you went last year on November 1st. I don't know where kindness and general humanity and empathy end and where love begins, and maybe there's no difference, or maybe it all blurs together. But I feel like I'm looking at something here in this email that warms my heart and makes me smile. Back to the email. I say all of the above to ask, would you mind saying a brief happy birthday to her in one of your upcoming monologues? I completely understand if not. I don't imagine I'm the first person to email with this request. And if you say yes to one person, then the impulse becomes to say yes to everyone. It doesn't hurt to ask, though. I hope you're well. You mentioned a loss during a recent episode. I hope you and your loved ones are weathering, grieving, and holding on. In love of literature, David. Well, David, I agree with you that if I say happy birthday to Hannah, I will likely be flooded with requests and it is likely to be overwhelming. But you know what? I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Let a thousand flowers bloom and let a million requests from the Davids of the world come in. We don't have enough happiness in this world, so let's wish for more of it. Hannah, I wish you a very happy birthday on your special doubled birthday. And I've put a note on my calendar for October 13th, 2035, when you will have tripled your birthday, birthday's day. So I could wish you a happy 39th birthday too. But for now, happy 26th and a happy October to you and to David, you wonderful lovers of literature. And thank you, David, for your kind words. We are indeed weathering and grieving and holding on. I'm glad to have a birthday to help distract us from that, to remind us that there are bright colors as well as black ones on this here planet. And so we turn to Edgar Allan Poe with our smiles bright and our arms full of cake and balloons, and he stands holding a bottle of brandy and a long, sharp needle. From the heights of a 25-year-old turning 26, to the madman sitting on a chair atop a hidden corpse and that needle ready to burst our little balloons. Let's turn to the dark side and dive into the telltale heart after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, 10 things worth saying about the Telltale Heart. Number one, precision. That's one of the keys to this story. It's very, very precise. It's also very ambiguous, as we'll see. As you listen, think about what you're being told and what you're not being told. You hear the process very painstakingly described, night by night, second by second, Movement by movement, that gives the narrator authority, right? Sounds like a guy who remembers things well, who's being open and honest, who's filling you in. It's like listening to a a carpenter or some other craftsman giving you details of the work that he or she is about to do. Those details establish credibility, reliability. You trust this narrator, except you have no idea who he is. Some people say it's a she. There's nothing to say that it's not. Imagine that. You don't know who the narrator is, and you don't know who the old man is either. Some kind of father figure, an economic oppressor, a landlord, a servant. We don't know. That makes you rethink all this trust and reliability, doesn't it? What's this precision doing? Maybe it's Maybe this is a guy who gets obsessed with things, who's focused on the wrong things, too precise. Maybe that's part of his nervous disposition. Maybe he's too inside his own head. There's something antisocial about giving us so many precise details while not giving us the basics of the story. Here I am. You probably want to know a little about me. Call me Ishmael. We get none of that. Which leads me to number two. Number two, ambiguity. The precision here is a trick. It gives way to ambiguity. That ambiguity opens doors. It lets us focus on the pure act. Iago doesn't have a motive for why he's whispering into Othello's ear. If he did, we'd criticize it. We'd say that's no justification for what you're doing, or maybe we'd say, well, maybe maybe Iago has a point. Maybe all this is justified. Well, instead... We don't have his motive, and that shifts the focus to Othello. Do you trust rumors and gossip? What is it in us that responds to unsubstantiated allegations? Why is it so easy to be suspicious? Why do we drift toward jealousy and hatred? There will always be Iagos. They might have a million reasons. Not always known to us. Some of those reasons outrageously poor, insufficient. And in this story, The Telltale Heart, we are all half crazy, maybe not as far along the 
the road to craziness as the narrator, and maybe that's what's so sinister. Maybe it's not knowing why he's gone over the edge. Maybe that's what makes us wonder if our neighbor might be the next one. Could happen to anyone at any time. Not for some extreme reason, perhaps, but for some triviality. It could happen to our neighbor. It could happen to us. Murder and madness stalk us all. The Telltale Heart, this is number three, The Telltale Heart has two versions in print. One began with some lines by Longfellow. Poe then removed those when The Telltale Heart was reprinted. He hated Longfellow. (laughs) He thought Longfellow was a plagiarist who stole from others like Tennyson and like Poe himself. Probably didn't help that Longfellow was much more famous, much more successful, lived in the comforts of an ivory tower, was better paid. Which brings me to number four. Four, Poe was broke for most of his life. At this point, when he wrote this, he was a freelancer, mostly. He worked for different magazines, editing them on a salary, but his salary wasn't much. It was something like 50 bucks a month at one place. Early on, his annual income was around $600 per year. And he scrambled to make that much. He objected to all the writing he was doing for the magazine while he was editing. He was being paid on salary. And he said, look at all this I'm producing for you. All these words, all this, these column inches I'm filling up, all these pages. If I was writing for you as a contributor... I'd have been credited and paid for all those pages as separate contributions, but as a freelancer, he was making hardly anything. He wasn't making money as an editor or a freelancer. For The Black Cat, that story, he was paid $20. The Pit and the Pendulum, 38 bucks. The Purloined Letter, my goodness, he inaugurated the whole detective story genre. And for that story, he was paid $12. The Cask of Amontillado, my favorite, paid him 15 Well, for the Telltale Heart, he was paid 10 bucks, A little better than the Raven, which earned him 9 Meanwhile, he dreamed of starting his own magazine. He was making others rich. He knew. When he worked at Graham's, in a year, the subscriptions rose from 5000 to 50000 Poe thought all the money is going to, to the owners of Grams. What about me? He thought if he started a journal, he if he could get twenty thousand subscribers. Remember, Grams had fifty thousand after a year of Poe working there. If he could get twenty thousand subscribers for his own magazine, he estimated he'd have made seventy or eighty thousand dollars per year. Instead. He was making 600 bucks, and he hacked out stories like The Telltale Heart for 10 bucks a pop. For number five, we return to the Longfellow poem that first introduced The Telltale Heart. You won't always see these lines when you see the story, and I'm not going to read them when I come to read the story, so I'll give them to you now. Art is long and time is fleeting, And our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating funeral marches to the grave. It's by Longfellow. It's a nice bit of harmony with the story, sort of. 
the beating heart anyway, the muffled drums, but I'm not sure the, the verse is really all that necessary. It makes the point that we're all going to die, but that doesn't really tell us much about the mind and reality and losing our grip on our sanity or our conscience. This is, that's, those are closer to the core of the story, those themes. I almost said closer to the heart of the story, but I avoided it out of that instinct to not distract through unnecessary or casual repetition. But you know what? It's not really casual. It's deliberate. The heart of the story is better. That's a better word for it. The quivering, pulsing heart of this story is not the idea that art might outlast us, but we're all going to die, as we see in the Longfellow poem. The dark, trembling heart of this story is the idea that we live on a knife edge, and sometimes that means we bleed, and sometimes that means we kill, and sometimes that means we become unrecognizable to ourselves, and guilt has its icy fingers wrapped around our mind squeezing us sometimes. Society depends on sanity, but insanity exists, as does evil. That's what the story is about. Number six, I am not a clinical psychiatrist, but the most common diagnosis of the narrator of the telltale heart is schizophrenia. The DSM-5 criteria for schizophrenia is as follows. Two or more of the following each symptom present for a significant portion of time. Delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, e.g. frequent derailment or incoherence, grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, negative symptoms, i.e. diminished emotional expression or avolition. At least one of those symptoms must be delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech. However, it also says, so I think our narrator would qualify, however, it also says the disturbance must not be attributable to the physiological effects of a substance, e.g. a drug of abuse or a medication, or the result of another medical condition. Which brings me to number seven. Seven, pose drug abuse. Alcohol was his drug of choice. He was a lightweight drinker once going starkers after a single glass of champagne. He drank brandy mostly and also absinthe. He used opium probably enough to know what it could do to you, but it's been disputed that he was truly an addict. We don't know for sure exactly how much opium he was taking. Also, I've seen it said that he was strung out on cocaine, that he wrote The Raven when he was on cocaine. I'm not sure there's evidence for that. At some point... We at the History of Literature podcast will need to dig into this further, maybe next October. Also fascinating is Poe's death. That'll be an episode for sure. One of these years, he was wearing strange clothes, and he was near a voting booth that was known for cooping, in which, which was a term used for the practice of drugging people and taking them from polling place to polling place so they could vote multiple times, sometimes changing their clothes 
so they wouldn't be recognized or identified. Is that why Poe died? Someone had captured him, kidnapped him, basically, took him around to cheat the vote. It's a theory. We'll look into all the theories when we do the episode on Poe's death, which brings me to number eight. Eight. The last we ever heard from Poe was when he died on October 7th, 1849. Or was it? Elizabeth, a.k.a. Lizzie Doten, was a 19th century American poet who also gave spiritualist lectures. She was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts to a pair of Mayflower descendants. She began to have psychic experiences as a child. Finally, she surrendered to quote, the inspirations that moved upon me, quote, unquote, and subsequently, quote, held conscious communion with disembodied spirits, end quote. The poems she wrote were dictated to her by Shakespeare, Robert Burns, and Edgar Allan Poe. Here's some of how she described the experiences in the preface to her book, Poems from the Inner Life. Quote, Among these spiritual poems will be found two purporting to come from Shakespeare. This influence seemed to overwhelm and crush me. I was afraid and shrank from it. I can only say that his power was mightier than I could bear. The influence of Burns was pleasant, easy, and exhilarating, and left me in a cheerful mood. As a spirit, he seemed to be genial and kindly, with a clear perception and earnest love of simple truth, and at the same time a good-natured contempt for all shams, mere forms, and solemn mockeries. This was the way in which he impressed me, and I felt much more benefited than burdened by his presence. The first poem delivered by Poe came to me far more unexpectedly than any other. The influence of Poe was neither pleasant nor easy. I can only describe it as a species of mental intoxication. I was tortured with a feeling of great restlessness and irritability, and strange incongruous images crowded my brain. Some were bewildering and dazzling as the sun, others dark and repulsive. Under his influence, particularly, I suffered the greatest exhaustion of vital energy, so much so that after giving one of his poems, I was usually quite ill for several days. End quote. Indeed. One can only imagine poor Lizzie Doton being visited by the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe channeling her to deliver more of his (laughs) bilious poetry. Okay, number nine. The first screen adaptation of The Telltale Heart is a silent version from 1928. You can watch it on YouTube. It starts with the text written on what appears to be crinkled paper in handwritten crazy man font. It says, quote, this is a story as related by an insane man and presented thusly as the events recorded themselves in his distorted mind, end quote. Why? Why would you put that? We won't give that disclaimer before we read the story, dear listener. The narrator begs you to consider his sanity and we are not going to pass judgment. We'll let the narrator speak for himself. That said, the movie 
The silent 1928 version is absolutely extraordinary. It's 20 minutes long, but it's worth your time if you have a few minutes to take a look, especially at the beginning. It's astonishingly ahead of its time. The lighting, the effects, the camera angles, the artistry of it is all top-notch. My only objection is that little disclaimer, which to me interferes with the text, which brings me to number 10. Number 10, my presentation of the story, the one you are about to hear. So I had an idea a few years ago when my sons were younger. One was in about seventh grade, maybe about 12 years old. The other was in fourth grade. He was about nine. And our voices were all different, of course. Mine is more or less what you hear now, as deep as that. The seventh graders was not quite that deep or not really that deep. And the fourth graders was much higher Somehow I got the idea that we could do a really effective version of A Telltale Heart by reading it in thirds, starting with me, with a voice very deep and calm, and then it would flow into the voice of my older sons, maybe just blend it in so you didn't even notice, and his voice was higher, and by the end you'd get to the little one with his high voice, and you wouldn't even notice that things had gotten so crazy and out of control that the pitch of the voice had changed. So that was my idea. So we actually recorded the story, the three of us, each reading for a few minutes. And I thought, this is going to be the most terrifying version of the story ever. Step aside, Vincent Price. Move over, James Mason. The Wilsons have arrived and will end the debate. Poor listeners, be ready to be shocked and stunned. And I thought, okay, and then we'll add a few sound effects. We'll have heartbeats getting louder, of course, some shocking music, etc. And you, the history of literature audience, will be given a great treat for Halloween. Well, You can probably guess what happened, how that turned out. I listened back to what my boys had read. It wasn't scary at all. It was, in fact, adorable. Not the effect I was going for. If you have a little one in your life, have them read some Edgar Allan Poe aloud to you sometime. It's not heart-stopping. It's heartwarming. Those little ghouls are a treasure in those cute little voices. So for years after that, I resisted doing this story on the podcast, grumbling to myself whenever someone requested it. Well, yeah, yeah. And uh, the telltale heart, sure. Well, I had a great idea about it. It didn't pan out. Whatever. There's other stuff I can do instead. Because I'd want to do it right. Maybe a real production. Maybe I should hire a composer or figure something else out. Something to replace my genius idea which had merely exposed me yet again as, as a big, dumb loser whose best ideas always crumble into farce. But then I had an epiphany this year. No, that's not the way to do it here on the history of literature. Other places can do it that way. The way to do it here is no intro, no background music, no voice trickery, no sound effects. No flashing lights, no screams. It's the words on the page. The telltale heart, naked. Just read the words on the page. 
Paul was a master. Let his mastery do the work and let the readers supply the rest. So that's what we're going to do. No gimmicks, no effects. What you will hear after the break is the telltale heart as Poe wrote it, just his words. You can focus on that. Whatever experience you have will come not from the acting or the shadows on the screen or the facial expressions or the the camera zooming in and tilting as the character digs his fingernails into the cliff edge of his own sanity. Just the story. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. After this. Telltale heart. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week, before I killed him, and every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed 
that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened, though, through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom 
deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him. Although I chuckled at heart, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length, a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot out from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. 
The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done, but for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own, in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat, and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until, at length, 
I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. Mm, that is going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Edgar, of course, for joining me today and his narrator we will be back with more october goodness kurt vonnegut is still to come that might get bumped to november based on some publication updates some postponements but we will have mary shelley and percy shelley maybe part two and a victorian ghost story flaubert might get shoved to november sorry gus hopefully you don't mind I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>